When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv. 
All right, so tis the season. Tis the season for Liv to take a little bit of a break and apparently talk about herself in the third person. Of course, it is the holidays. Happy holidays to anyone who celebrates and happy whatever you celebrate. Now, I personally am looking forward to having some time both to myself and to finally finish this novel and to finish a new book proposal that I'm working on and to work on the very special series of episodes that are coming up in January that you are all going to go nuts over that I am so excited about and that are taking like about three times as long as regular episodes because of the nature of these episodes. Ugh, mystery. Anyway, what that means is over the holiday period when people aren't necessarily listening to a ton of podcasts anyways, I am going to be presenting you with a couple of the very earliest conversation episodes that I ever did for this podcast because, man, what a way to start this thing that has become huge and has become one of my and your favorite things about the podcast every week. These conversations I get to have with authors and experts and professors and academics of all kinds. They're such an incredible part of the podcast now and they began because Bettany Hughes, of all people, her publicist emailed me about her coming on the show to promote a new book. And so I began this series by the very first two people I talked to, other than having a couple of friends on here and there, were Bettany Hughes and Natalie Haynes, which is just still so mind-boggling to me and just so wild. Anyway, how far I've come, I guess, but also how weird I started. Anyway, so today I am bringing you a re-airing of the conversation I had with Bettany Hughes towards the end of last year. It was utterly fascinating. We talked about her book, Venus and Aphrodite, and therefore talked all about Aphrodite, both as a mythological character, but also the, you know, archaeology we have of her, the statuary, all these fascinating things, the way her, as she as a goddess, really spreads so far beyond the bounds of Greek myth. Uh, It's utterly fascinating and brilliant and amazing. And obviously, it was just an incredible conversation. And so I just wanted to give it to you guys again in this season when I also get to relax. Ugh. Before we get into the episode, a reminder, please submit your questions for the 2022 year beginning bonanza Q&A. I don't know what I'm calling it, but I'm going to be answering any and all questions you have about Greek myths, Greek mythology generally, how they disseminated information, characters from Greek myth. Do you want to know about podcasting? I get a lot of questions from people in my DMs, in my email and stuff, and I just don't have the time, uh, the bandwidth to answer individual questions, but when it comes to a Q&A episode, it's perfect because this easily answers so many of your questions, often just through one person's individual ones, and you all get these questions answered, and, and I get to do it in a way that is doable for me with the time and energy that I have. So I really love Q&A episodes. So anyway, that's all to say. Please submit your questions to the Q&A. Uh, it is mythsbaby.com slash questions. That's mythsbaby.com slash questions. There is a form there where you can just pop your question in and I will read everything that I can get to in the episode. Uh, I can't wait to hear all the questions that you guys have. So please don't forget, 
mythsbaby.com slash questions. Thank you all so much. Please enjoy this incredible episode with Bettany Hughes. This is episode 98. The Cyprian goddess, the Catharian, Venus, Aphrodite, a conversation with Bettany Hughes. Very excited to talk to you today about Aphrodite, of all people. She's always been one of my absolute favorites, kind of how I got into to mythology, and I absolutely loved reading your book. Um, so thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Oh, pleasure. Total pleasure. So why don't we just start? You want to tell me uh, a little bit about uh, the book Aphrodite and Venus? Yeah, well, so uh, the, the book in a way is a life story of a goddess. And I have to say, when I started writing it and when I was talking to people about doing it, they said, you are crazy because, first of all, how can you write a life story of somebody who didn't exist? <laughs> and also, how can you write a life story of somebody who's immortal? So the very point is that she has no kind of beginning or end, really. Um, uh, so how is this going to work? But but I just wanted to dive deep into um, her narrative because, as you know, she's an incredible creature. Um, she's much more complex and complicated than most people think. And I also think she's a remarkable um, uh, goddess to spend time time in the company of because when you follow her trail through time uh, it's almost as though she's holding your hand through the, the story of the human experience because I, I know that there'll be some people who, who do believe she exists as a goddess I happen not to I think I think she's a cultural construct <laughs> but um, you know from my point of view what the gods and goddesses are this remarkable thing where uh, humanity has uh, a really passionate idea about how to live in the world and they give that idea a name and a face and it becomes a deity and Aphrodite Venus the, the goddess of many names is really the kind of the incarnation I think of desire and not just sexual desire but desire of all kinds um, personal physical political uh, social um, aspirational desire so I thought by uh, following her trail archaeologically, so through the clues that she's left us through time, I'd be able to start to jigsaw puzzle together a, a kind of richer story of the world and the people in it. So, so she was irresistible to me um, in many ways, and and also doubly irresistible because um, her story tells us so much about humanity's um, uh, perceptions of femaleness. Uh, and what it is to be uh, what it is to be a woman um so so i so anyway so i so i thought i she was somebody that i had to you know i had i had to kind of try to track down across not just centuries not just thousands of years but but verging on tens of thousands of years yeah that's oh, that's also beautifully said about her as well but that's what fascinated me most um and sort of actually leads me to the first sort of question or discussion point I had for you. I I did my bachelor's in classics quite some time ago now, not all that long, but um, but it was, you know, fairly surface level. And um, one thing we, we did cover in a Bronze Age archaeology course, though, was uh, in the goddess figurines and things. But I never quite knew how connected they were to Aphrodite specifically or how sort of she she fit into that so it was really fascinating your book to learn about her how she does come from Bronze Age um, you know not necessarily just the the time period we we typically associate with Greek mythology um, so how was it uh, finding all of that wonderful information about her from so long ago 
Yeah, well, I well, I always think you know one of the one of the delights of, of history um, and indeed archaeology is that when you study it, you think you're at the beginning, and then you find a little kind of trickle of a trail that takes you further further back, and that's absolutely the case with this goddess. So, famously, of course, you know she's a Greek goddess. That's what people think. She's Aphrodite, and with a very Greek name, and then she's uh, taken over by the Romans, and she becomes Venus. But actually, this notion of a kind of potent, divine, sublime force that causes people to want either what they haven't got or what they need um, it, it, is, it takes form right the way back in the Bronze Age. So when I was following her trail, um, I, I started really in both in the Middle East and, on, and in the Middle Eastern um, island of Cyprus. So... Cyprus is where we're told Aphrodite uh, is born. So uh, you'll know very well. Uh, I'm sure your listeners will have heard you describe this beautifully. You know, the birth of Aphrodite, the kind of gorgeous uh, birth of this goddess. Uh, foam born, we're told her name means <laughs> Aphrodite, you know, and everybody says, OK, so why is she foam born? And we have, of course, this incredible story that we hear uh, that she's uh, born out of a, a really kind of violent moment when Uranus, uh, the great god of the sky, is eternally copulating with Gaia, the goddess of the earth, trapping uh, their children inside her. And uh, not surprisingly, eventually she gets rather sick of this uh, joyless, endless lovemaking and persuades one of her sons, Kronos, to pick up a, a serrated flint sickle. Um, uh, I, 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 when I talk about this, you can see all the guys in the room crossing their legs. <laughs> and, and Kronos, and you know, chops off his father's penis and, and testicles and throw, they throws them into the sea. And from this kind of awful, bloody, frothy, foamy, spuming mess emerges what we're we're told is an awful and lovely maiden and that awful and lovely maiden is the young teenage goddess Aphrodite so this is this this is her kind of traditional birth in the Greek canon and she steps ashore on the island of Cyprus uh, which is uh, barren and stony and as she walks there's this sort of beautiful description of the uh, flowers and grasses growing beneath her feet so she brings fertility to the soil and um, but it doesn't actually start there. Uh, Cyprus plays a really important part in her life story. So if you go to Cyprus uh, looking for this, this, this Greek goddess, you have to um, start to look further back to the Bronze Age and, and indeed to the Copper Age, where in the Copper Age, uh, so we're talking around, you know, sort of 5,000, 6,000 years ago, you get these uh, remarkable, uh, really extraordinary creatures uh, that have been created by the hands of women and men on the island. So they are these strange clear images clearly to do with fecundity and fertility. So what look like female forms with you know beautiful breasts and hips and this kind of curved incised vulva. But for the neck and the head, they have a, have a phallus with a phallus tip for the face. So they are kind of many sexes in one. And we describe them as female, we describe them as goddesses. Um, they're called affectionately locally as the Lady of Lemba because they were found near the village of Lemba. But actually, they're both male and female in one. And again, you get these wonderful little little picrolites, which are sort of green stone versions of that extraordinary penis-headed um, creature, which we think were probably, because they have piercings at the top, so we think they were probably worn 
uh, by these prehistoric civilizations as as amulets. So that sort of sense of the power of nature and fecundity and male and femaleness is there on the island of Cyprus, Aphrodite's island, um, uh, because, of course, famously, she's also called Kypris, which is the name of Cyprus. So she's the the Kypris goddess, the, the, the lady of Cyprus. But exactly as you say, then if you then if you carry on kind of following that trail through the the Bronze Age and to the Middle East, there are these, you know, extraordinary early divinities, um, Inanna, Ishtar, and Astarte from the Middle East, um, and they take the form often of, of figurines that you're talking about. And these are goddesses uh, of both sex and love, but also of war and pain. And they are hugely important, hugely influential. They have enormous status and standing. Uh, If you think of, you know, Inanna alone, there are 160 sanctuaries to her in the city of of Babylon. Um, uh, the, the, The knowledge of her worship spreads far and wide when... Egyptian pharaohs fall ill, they ask for a little figurine of of Inanna to be brought to them to try to make them well again. So they were thought to hold this kind of incredible, incredible power. And why I think they are definitely the ancestors, the kind of great-great-grandmothers, if you like, of Aphrodite, is because their dominion is love and sex, but it is also um, conflict. And that is something which Aphrodite looks after as well. So they are war goddesses. And there's this sort of notion that love and hate, that sex and war, that desire um, to, to, to fight and to fornicate are, are, are not even two sides of the same coin, you know, that they are kind of one and the same thing and the, the membrane between them is very, very thin. So, yes, so I do think those early figurines are very definitely connected to the goddess Aphrodite, but we should really think of they aren't her in Bronze Age, Middle Eastern form, they, they are, you know, they really is a family tree and they are the kinds of early ancestors of, of the goddess that has more famously ended up on Valentine's Day cards and you know, <laughs> <laughs> attractive, attractive marble sculptures. <laughs> oh, that's so fascinating. Um, I've always just been really interested in the, that, the connection between all those the different um the regions and the goddesses and how they do kind of evolve like that and like you say ancestors more than more than versions of the goddess yeah um yeah absolutely fascinating i feel like i'm going to be just be saying that a lot in this conversation (laughs) (laughs) which is basically how i felt reading the book (laughs) oh cool cool. um one thing that i also found really interesting and i think um i think my listeners are going to be really interested in, in it as well um is her relationship with ancient greek sex workers um, which is something i didn't really have a lot of knowledge on before reading your book and i found that interesting but i wonder if you could sort of elaborate on on that kind of that relationship yeah so so aphrodite is thought to be the kind of patron goddess of the prostitute and um there are kind of all kinds of versions of the story that uh, you know the very first prostitute was Aphrodite in human form or, or that she sort of gave her spirit to the first prostitute um but but there's something a bit more kind of um you know in a, in, in a way a bit more geographical I think actually to that connection that Aphrodite was thought to be the god of mixes of mixing things up and the god so so mixing up human relationships so the relationships between uh, you know men and women between societies between armies on the battlefield but also between places so She's often a goddess who's worshipped at the edge of things 
And of course, a port is where the sea meets the land. And so she was often the patroness of ports and of the sailors who who visited them. And, you know, it's a sort of stereotype and truism that it was true in the Bronze Age and is still true today that you find sex workers at ports to, to service the needs of those, um, those travelling traders and raiders and sailors. And I think that's probably why she ends up being connected with prostitutes, in fact, because she was physically in charge of the places where they operated. But there's also this kind of interesting line of inquiry about sacred prostitutes, of sacred sex workers um, in the temples of Aphrodite. And there's a sort of hint in in one of the works of Herodotus, the the Greek father of history, that that she is honoured by uh, women who will go to her temple and be paid to have sex. And that, that payment is then offered as a tribute to the goddess and taken by the kind of the, the priests uh, of the temple temple complex. There's a lot of dispute, dispute about this because the sources are very slim. Uh, there isn't a lot of archaeological evidence for it. And there's a possibility that actually come the Christian period, one of the things that, that Christian reformers and Christian fathers were really outraged by was the worship of Aphrodite and the, and the kind of explicit worship of, of sex and sexual desire. And so there are these kind of thundering um, uh, uh, passages from the, the, the church fathers talking about the need to, to purge the influence of Aphrodite and to get rid of these shameful men and women and the, the men and women who serviced other men and women in her temples. So it's almost that, you know, we, most of our evidence comes from this kind of negative diatribe. So quite rightly, people have questioned it and wondered whether it was almost just they were being held up as a kind of example of the kind of terrible, morally corrupt thing that could happen in pre-Christian religious centres. But but then I, I just think if you think about it, they're actually about the kind of beautiful strangeness of sex and the sex act and the fact that it does take you to another realm, um, that it is an extraordinary place that you can lose yourself in, um, that sex was definitely um, part of a number of, of, of the rites and rituals of the ancient and the prehistoric world. In a strange way, it would be odd if there weren't some kind of sex worker at the sanctuaries of uh, the goddess whose business was sex and sexual desire. So I think almost by a, as a sort of process of elimination, we should imagine that so-called sacred prostitutes uh, did exist. And, and also you have to really mind shift and, and, and not be thinking ahistorically here, but put yourself back those thousands of years where um, uh, sacrificing yourself, sacrificing your body for uh, a god or a goddess literally meant to make it sacred you're fakiing it sacri you know you're you're making yourself sacred and that was a huge honor so i'm sure there was uh, corruption and manipulation and i'm sure that that as always in the kind of sad story of, of humans something which might start off with a kind of um uh, uh, purity and parity that somebody ends up exploiting it somewhere down the line but but i think that um there probably were some form of sacred sex workers in some of her shrines and sanctuaries and what is certain is that she was considered to be the goddess who who kept an eye on sex workers and was their patron and there's this incredible discovery from Athens 
uh, from the Kyramikos area of Athens, which is uh, just at the kind of the edges of the city, um, close to the cemetery area, where we know that um, prostitutes, both male and female, operated. And they have these kind of horrible living conditions, just kind of like stalls, really, um, where, where Athenians and visitors would go for what were euphemistically called middle-of-the-day marriages. And when this area was being excavated, there was this incredible find of this beautiful, um, almost unique silver medallion showing Aphrodite, the goddess Aphrodite, riding a goat, you know, you can kind of <laughs> draw, draw whatever conclusion you want to do from that, with a kind of beautiful little eros clambering up a ladder. And again, this is no coincidence because um, the Greek word for ladder is climax, and we talk about climaxes today in the, in the sexual act. So so there's all kind of allusions to, to, to the act of sex and the kind of transformative um, nature of sex and sexuality. And, and it is no coincidence that that was found there um, in, in amongst the living and working spaces of the sex workers. So so she was definitely there for, for prostitutes. But I think more than it just being about sex, it was also about where they where they were in cities and at, and at ports and not just kind of raw, carnal, rutting sex, but something to do with the transportive, transformative nature of, of the sex act. Interesting. Yeah. So I love the idea and sort of separating yourself from the the world we live in now and the opinions that have come from, you know, the Christianity that's evolved around us uh, mm-hmm. and looking back onto how they would have how they would have viewed that and that there was, you know, that there were sacred sex workers and and that there was a goddess there to kind of watch over them and everything. I think it makes perfect sense when you when you say exactly what you did about, you know, Aphrodite being a goddess of sex and everything. So of course she would kind of be involved in that, but it's, it's one of those things that gets influenced so much by Western cultures Mm. that have been influenced by Christianity. Mm, mm, That's right. It's very, it's very easy. I mean, it's one of the great delights of being a historian is kind of forcing yourself to mind travel, you know, forcing yourself and it's hard, but to try to kind of drop all the kind of concepts and, and constructs and prejudices that we bring with us and try to kind of put yourselves back into the minds of, of um, those, those women and men of the past. Mm -hmm. That's certainly what I sort of obsess over far too often is not even so much from a historian aspect of, but just thinking about them every moment of my life. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, gosh, you and me both. So people always say, were you happiest? And I can think, well, basically in the Bronze Age, you know, I kind of wander around in my head in the Bronze Age and then come up with a horrible jerk of reality when I realize I'm not there. I'm in the 21st century. Um, Yeah, but it's a very, it's it's a kind of beautiful, interesting place to inhabit. Absolutely. I, I think far too often what I wouldn't give to be able to actually go back there yes, <laughs> and just yes. take note of everything in my head and learn everything imaginable. <laughs> yes, exactly. 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 Yes. Not that it would be super fun to be a woman back no, then, but no, at the same time. <laughs> no, no, indeed. Well, I mean, that is the classic thing, isn't it? The kind of uh, the rose-tinted spectacles that we can have. I think there's, you know, oh my gosh, the yeah, a million things that, that kind of made life pretty horrific, kind of not least judgment. I think the sort of judgment of, um, of the, you know, the fact that we're constricts and if you, if you strayed across those, then you would be um, considered, you know, kind of beyond the pale in society. But, but still, you know, all, all kinds of fascinating things. Again, when you you use Aphrodite to travel through time, the fact that 
right the way back to the Bronze Age. So, so when she's in her sort of early iteration as this amazing goddess Inanna, if you look at Inanna and then down time, look at uh, representations of Aphrodite, she's somebody who uh, encapsulates both male and female. And, and you see this incredibly clearly from figurines of her from one particular sanctuary site at San, at, in Cyprus where she's represented as this beautiful goddess with breasts and again a vulva and a kind of lovely lovely slightly translucent flowy um, uh, dress and she's got a beard so she is both man and woman in one form and her priests uh, again from from sanctuaries in Cyprus are shown they're very definitely male priests they've very definitely got breasts and I, I think there's no question that there's this notion that, uh, that a kind of non-binary understanding of sex and sexuality uh, at that time particularly in the kind of early stages of her life story and we know that when Inanna was worshipped uh, one of the hymns of praise that were sung to her was saying you know you make a woman a man and a man a man and woman and we know that her priests was dressed up as as women and her priestesses would dress up as men when they followed Inanna in her festivals with the idea that they were complementing the maleness and the femaleness within the goddess herself so so um she's a kind of patron not just of sex but of different forms of sexuality too that's one thing i i love visiting in in greek mythology is the the different variations on gender that they have and how they would and this is obviously later mythology um but how they would understand non-binary and how they would understand trans people and you know just non-cisgender people it's it's a fascinating thing and it exists in so many myths so it's it's even more I think powerful to know that it existed much before any of the myths we really have of those characters as well. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's not by chance. You know, they're not just sort of randomly coming up with those ideas. They're exploring those uh, feelings and, uh, you know, uh, physical, the kind of physical difference that they saw around them. Um, you know, no, you're absolutely right, and I, you know, I love the fact with Dionysus, who of course is you mm. know, the god of the god of wine and a great companion of Aphrodite, and you know, it's no coincidence. We all know, I suspect, <laughs> we've all been there when you know you've had a drink or two, and you definitely feel like you love somebody more than you did before you <laughs> before you had that drink. And you know, the Greeks were, of course, very aware of that. Um, and that there's just a little kind of a side of information. I love the fact that her name, her, in in written form first appears probably on this on this cup called Nestor's cup um which is actually from Magna Graeca from the sort of um uh, Greek Italy and it's a kind of big boozy cup and it's basically it's basically saying you know you have kind of drunken sex (laughs) as a result of of combining Dionysus the god of wine and Aphrodite the goddess of love so it's not the most kind of elegant or potent way to enter the written record but but yeah Dionysus too the you know the great god of wine Bacchus as he's sometimes called he's he's represented as well as sometimes um being both sexes uh, at the same time uh in in sculptural form and in what's written about him so yes I mean you're you're absolutely right it's uh that you know things that kind of developments that we think are very modern or or kind of approaches that we think are very 21st century you, you know they they got there two and a half three and a half sometimes four and a half thousand years ago yeah and it's almost just that we lost it in between yeah exactly yeah yeah exactly. i i i find it's 
it's interesting to tell those stories, but also I think very important given the world we live in now to sort of recognize that, um, that the ancients realized uh, that these people were regular people yeah. amongst them. And, yeah. and I think it's sort of, yeah, we got, it lost, got lost in between with the uh, more uh, the religions we have now or mm-hmm. <laughs> certainly mm-hmm. post ancient cultures. Mm. And also something to aspire to, you know, and something not to be afraid of and something to kind of explore and uh, delight in as well. You know, it's a very positive, this wasn't sort of considered something that was, you know, liminal. It was something that was central to society. So, yeah, so it's a very, um, you know, that's, that's, that's why I love history. It's kind of, you spend, you spend your days just having your mind opened, mind and eyes opened in all kinds of ways. Ah, Absolutely. I mean, it's, doing this podcast has been the greatest thing to ever happen to me for many reasons, least of which it's, it's a career now, but also just the amount that I've sort of forced myself to learn by, every week opening a book and figuring out something new, either historical or mythological or any of that. There's just, it's endless. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right. I should just warn you that my cat has come up to join me. (laughs) She obviously thinks we're having too good a time. So you'll, you'll have a little (laughs) diamond spirit of a cat. Actually, it's very appropriate. The goddesses often had big cats with them. So I've got my little, my little cat joining us here on this podcast. If you hear strange purring, that's that's not me sort of like, you know, having breathing difficulties. <laughs> the cats arrive. My cat does that quite often. So I think yeah. it's telling. And right now he hasn't come out. So ah. maybe it's the only time. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let me, let me know when he does. <laughs> yeah. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan... Millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. One thing I also want to talk about is the way the Romans took on Venus and and sort of adapted Aphrodite to their needs. Um, and, and then, of course, you know, even later, she sort of became even even more changed when Augustus uh, took power. But um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So really fascinating what happens with with Rome. So. Um, the Romans do have a fertility and sex goddess, uh, uh, an early one, who was probably called Venus. And interestingly, Venus, if you look back at the words and look at its Proto-Indo-European roots, it actually comes from the very, very early root um, Vanas, which means desire. So it was obviously a kind of, the Romans had their own desiree goddess. Um, but as they take over more and more Greek territory after the fall of Corinth and as they're expanding their own empire, um, their fledgling empire, they, they're very interested in this goddess who seems to have a real hold over people. And um, they kind of return to her martial beginnings, you know, the idea of this is a goddess of, of not just of love, but of war. Um, and so you see in, in the Roman representations of Venus, she's often armed. So she's often standing there, kind of really sort of weird statues, just, you know, Google some now or kind of go and have a look at some in museums. So she's fully naked, but she has, apart from the fact she's got a helmet on and a spear and a shield um, uh, or a little sword. Sometimes Eros is with her, her Cupid offering her, uh, offering her her helmet. And uh, so, so they're, they're kind of re- remembering this idea of Venus as a goddess who promotes warfare um, and desire for another's territory. And they actually work that into the into the very kind of mythology of Rome itself, because if you think about it, look back to the family tree of the Romans and it all begins with Venus. So Venus, the goddess, uh, has an affair with the mortal Anchises and gives birth to um, a kind of semi-divine hero, Aeneas, who is the Trojan warrior. 
And Aeneas, of course, famously flees the war uh, at Troy, taking a sword with him. And he then goes on to found the Julian dynasty. And part of that dynasty are the, are the famous twins, Romulus and Remus, who go on to found Rome. So in the Roman mind, Venus was, was their kind of all potent uh, initial mother she was she was the mother of the nation the mother of what it was to be roman she was the mother of mother of rome and so she was terribly important um to to the romans and you find for instance roman generals will make a sacrifice to her before they go into battle famously julius caesar wears a ring with an image of of venus on it every day and he builds a beautiful temple to venus in the forum where of course he puts a statue of Cleopatra, his his Egyptian lover, as as Venus Aphrodite, and uh, Cleopatra herself plays with this association with Venus. You know, so she, Aphrodite was very very popular in uh, in Egypt and was worshipped there, particularly in Alexandria, which was the the headquarters of Cleopatra, and Cleopatra consciously dresses as Aphrodite down to her golden sandals and she has these uh, kind of blondish reddish tawnyish hair pieces made for her which as if she's got the golden hair of, of Aphrodite and she starts a real uh, because Cleopatra is so striking and so talked about she starts a real fashion among Roman women to dress as Venus Aphrodite although there's this very kind of gruesome detail that in order to do so uh, Roman uh, high 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 powered women will use the hair pieces of Germanic slaves. So slave slave you know people poor women who've been captured um, from northern and uh, western Europe who've got kind of reddish hair and their hair is used as the hair of Aphrodite. So so yeah so she's really important to the Romans. She's she's absolutely there as part of the the Roman imperial project and it's it's in a conversation in the famous Aeneid where we hear that Rome should have an empire without limits and Venus is present at that conversation so she's the kind of propelling mother of Roman ambition and Roman desire and whereas uh, the Greeks tend to focus on the sort of um, sensual sexual nature of that desire uh, the Romans who are so militaristic uh, really emphasize the the uh, bellicose nature of where desire can take you we're actually I'm covering the Aeneid right now in the podcast in sort of on and off episodes yeah it's it's a harder one to cover I would say and keep it entertaining but (laughs) oh yeah but uh I yeah I love I love hearing about that sort of side of her because of course like you said in the Greek she's not particularly associated with that so other than obviously Ares who's her relationship with Aries is one of my favorite things. In yes, yes, yes. I mean, I mean, it's great, isn't it? And again, no coincidence that it's the god of war, and that's that's who she has her fantastic fling with. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's um, you know, and again, it's. It, I just think it's so interesting that this sort of notion of her her getting kind of tangled up and caught by the gods and they and they're they're doing a sort of neck curtain twitching spying on mm. on their on their on their liaison it's kind of both very divine and very very deeply human yeah that's one of my favorite stories I mean we've sort of touched on all of my favorites today because they seem to all include Aphrodite but between her birth uh, in the foam and and the story of of Hephaestus catching her and Ares in the net is it's just, I mean, it's why I love Greek mythology, because it's so 
wildly entertaining for something that is so old and so universal still you know it's like real housewives of mount olympus but it's all hephaestus just creating all the drama um but i i absolutely love that and actually leads to to one of the questions i had from from purely mythological standpoint um what are your thoughts on uh aphrodite's position as a married woman who doesn't seem to particularly appreciate her husband all that much whereas you know her sort of momentous important relationship is with with Ares yeah it's really interesting that isn't it because she's also you know she is a patroness of marriage in in the in Greek society so Aphrodite is supposed to be there at weddings there are uh, shrines and altars to her in the cities in Athens for instance where brides will make sacrifice so she is a goddess of marriage and a kind of patroness of marriage. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm kind of not quite answering your question. I'll, I'll come to it, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just thinking about it. I think it's, it's kind of really fascinating for me, this, this, this notion that she's almost, she almost provides a kind of cosmic glue to human relations of all kinds, um, including uh, between husband and wife. And I'm sure that's why she's often worshipped in cities as her ancestors um, Inanna, Ishtar and Astarte were because she's thought to kind of help to keep together this strange mass, seething mass of humanity that you get in a city and in Athens itself she's worshipped as Aphrodite Harmonia Aphrodite of Union Aphrodite Harmonia Aphrodite of Harmony so she so she sort of looks after she, I said she looks after relationships but it isn't it interesting that she she famously has this affair with the god of war and she you know, rejects Hephaestus, the volcanic, lame of, uh, uh, god who was rejected by Hera, you know, the great queen of the of the goddesses, wife of Zeus, thrown from Olympus, which is one of the reasons, yeah, I mean, there are lots of variations, but one of the reasons he's supposed to, to be lame. I actually think, sorry, again. <laughs> no, I'm, I, I'm just getting fascinating, please. <laughs> <laughs> I just, yeah, I'm just, because I've just had a, had a really um, fantastic time in, in Greece. I've just been um, researching and filming in Greece and we came across this this uh, uh, research, which I wasn't aware of before, looking at blacksmiths and the fact that during those the um, the very traditional form of blacksmithery, um, arsenic can be produced as a result of the kind of alchemy of forging metal, and blacksmiths um, traditional blacksmiths can suffer from ar- arsenicosis, which is um, a condition where, which can make you lame. So I'm absolutely sure that's mm. why. Uh, Hephaestus is represented as the as the lame blacksmith god because actually that's what happened to blacksmith. But anyway, that that really is no, that's, side. <laughs> that's fascinating. That's so interesting to know. Yeah, yeah. You know, again, it's it's that's what I love. That's what I just love about looking at where fact and fantasy graze. That it's not. It's a kind of specious exercise to try to find the truth of myths because there's mm. never just one truth. There are so many, but you can find these kernels of truth or these little kind of clues to the real world which are dropped um, on the mythic trail but yes so isn't it amazing that that she has this famous um, affair with Ares with strapping attractive attractive dangerous Ares and and I think again for the Greeks you know there's 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 always a reason why they tell the stories they do and I think without judgment they're sort of saying that it's very easy to desire what you don't have it's very easy to um, have relationships which exist beyond the 
constraints of, of society and let's talk about this extraordinary love affair between two of the most powerful deities you know that that, that exist but it, but but we are also uh, you know invited to pass judgment and we're invited to to recognize that this can be both gorgeous and stimulating and exciting and potentially humiliating and disastrous for the individuals involved mm-hmm. well and that they have all the children and and am, am i right in aphrodite and, and Hephaestus don't have any children is that right no, i think no. that's right yeah i mean yeah. i have to say even i and i spend my my entire life in this world you always think you know and then there's some little variant myth that pops up and that you actually find that you know they were supposed to have had children in one form actually well i'm talking to you now i'm just going to wander over to I've in a fantastic kind of um ancient book of of uh of obscure myth i'll see if i can Ooh. i can find that out but i yeah it always seems to me when when the when the Greek myths come up as a question on quizzes, it's very unfair because often oh, there is, yes. you know there isn't a single answer, and people are told they got something wrong, and you think really, absolutely uh, endless variations. But where we're on safe ground is that we can say that they that you know Aphrodite's children were with Ares were mm-hmm. fear and panic and chaos, you know all these kind of dark dark things that arose as a result of of the union of passion and war but also harmony so this mm-hmm. god this this do- this this girl child harmony um who who isn't entirely you know she's not harmonious in and of herself she's 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 quite an operator but she can generate harmony so so yes you're you're absolutely right it's very interesting that that's it's almost like that's where for in their minds that is where the power lies is in this adulterous relationship not in the formal marriage between Hephaestus and Aphrodite yeah, that's always been one of my my favorite things, especially their children, and like you said, fear and terror, and yes. and harmony has always fascinated me so much. Um, she's actually kind of how I got as deep into mythology as I have. Ten years ago, I decided I wanted to write a novel about Greek mythology and discovered her, and mm. and have sort of been trying to work something through with that since. Um, but yeah. I just find hers and Cadmus's story to be very fascinating in that they're, they're very important and, you know, he's a hero and she's the goddess, but they're, they don't have their own personal story doesn't necessarily have most of the things that I think come with that level of, of importance. Their children certainly, you know, had everything in the world happen to them. But yes. but Harmony herself doesn't have much much in the way of stories. But I I always think she should. <laughs> yes, yes, that's absolutely right. Well, I'll keep what I promise you is I'll keep digging when I'm physically out digging on these sites. I will try to see if anything any any new evidence for Harmony. I'll send your I'll send your way and alert you to it. But I don't mean physically. <laughs> I don't mean physically giving you something. But, but you know, <laughs> give, you, give you the information. Please. Oh gosh, that would be amazing. <laughs> Get her written back into history. Yeah, I mean, and well, and I I find it very interesting that Eros is sometimes their child and sometimes not. Sometimes he's yes. far more than them, but sometimes he is their their child. Yes, yes, that's right. I and mean, you're absolutely right. He is sometimes sometimes her son, sometimes her consort. You know, sometimes born out of the same dark primordial night that she was born from. You know, they were thought to be kind of the earliest of the of the deities of Olympus. So yeah, but I think that's I think that is that is right. You know, that it is such a kind of fundamental, universal 
um, motivation, uh, this this motivation of, of desire of all kinds, that the Greeks were right to make that a kind of early primordial, uh, aboriginal uh, kind of um, uh, motivation rather than something which is then cultivated as, as uh, civilization is developed. Mm-hmm. This is very human, very mm. from the very beginning. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. One thing I I did note um, in your book, you, you reference a couple of Botticelli's works of Aphrodite and Ares, um, and that sort of in those interpretations, or perhaps more widely, she is shown as being quite dominant in that yes. relationship. Yes, that's right. Well, of course, so this, you know, the, the, the very famous Botticelli is the birth of Venus, um, you know, if kind of talk, telling that story of her birth from the sea, uh, coming ashore in this beautiful shell. That's probably the most replicated image there is of Venus. But there is also Venus and Mars where he's lying drugged and sleeping and she's very alert. Um, and I think that was probably, there was probably a reason for that and that it was actually Botticelli talking about the uh, kind of courtly uh, conflicts between families in the, the Renaissance Italy that he was operating in, but it's there's no doubt that she has the upper hand in that painting, um, and that he is sort of overcome by uh, by lust. But the the goddess that's caused this is uh, is alert and conscious. So uh, you know, it's very what happens to her downtown is fascinating. I mean, you know, something we've not even touched on is. The fact that she goes from being this feisty, potent warrior goddess through time to suddenly literally like losing her clothes, all her clothes drop off mm. her and she becomes a pinup goddess. And, and you know, the most famous version of this, uh, the kind of progenitor in some ways, is the Canidian Aphrodite, the famous Aphrodite of Knidos on the Turkish coast, where I was this summer, I managed to, oh. on like the breeze, I know it was incredible, it was like <laughs> two weeks when we were still, we were suddenly allowed to travel. I just went straight there and to this, this beautiful double harbour where this famous uh, statue of her was held in the temple of Aphrodite and, and ancient travellers come from, from all over uh, the ancient world to see it. And it's a, it's a really interesting sculpture. We don't have the original. We think the original was probably lost in a, in a great fire in Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, in the 5th century AD. But she's sort of, she's beautiful, um, uh, she's naked, and her hands are hovering above her breast and her her vulva. And it, and you can't tell, it's, a, it's, it's such an amazing sculptor because you can't tell whether she's ashamed of her nakedness or what, whether she's trying to cover herself up or invite people to look at the perfection of her naked beauty. But from here on in, you see this rather kind of pernicious development, really, where Aphrodite is somebody whose nakedness is 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 an opportunity for uh, a kind of voyeuristic pleasure rather than the, the ferocious nakedness of those early goddesses. And that is what's happening to women as well. So, so when you see these images of Aphrodite, really, and Venus, as as I said, as a kind of pinup. That's you can chart the diminishment of female, real female power in society, both in the Greek world and then later in the in the Roman world. And by the time uh, we get to beyond Botticelli, sort of at the time of Botticelli, 
she almost has this kind of slight renaissance and she's thought to encapsulate the, the purity of philosophical beauty and humanistic ideas of beauty and, and the kind of potency of, of the purity of, of sublime, beautiful thought. But uh, come the sort of 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, particularly the 19th, when there are images of Venus or Aphrodite, it's really just an excuse to have a, a whole load of naked female flesh on show um and it's a goddess so it's okay but of course there's this great irony that the models that are being used to model the goddess of aphrodite the goddess aphrodite are are often themselves very poor sex workers street girls um prostitutes so she's sort of gone from being um a, a subject um of of power and empowerment to to uh an, an object, an, an objectified object of uh, kind of female flesh and what perfect female flesh should look like. Yeah, she really sort of devolved there in some ways, I suppose. Yes, yes. Or devolved because of the devolution of how people thought of women. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Abs- abs- absolutely, definitely. You know, there's definitely she becomes kind of yeah romanticized and. Uh, downgraded uh, in one fell swoop. Mm-hmm. So, so with like you touched on there, which I think I was so interested in learning about that that I neglected to note it down in my conversation notes. So I'm glad you, glad you brought it up. Yeah. Um, but uh, the Canadian uh, statue where she's suddenly unclothed. So prior to that, she was she was shown a bit more modestly is that right or not necessarily modestly but not quite just flaunting nakedness yeah well that Canadian Aphrodite we think is the first uh life size not quite life size but life size um uh statue of a goddess naked Mm. she up until now she is often clothed so she's kind of draped or if she's naked, she's heroically, ferociously naked. You know, mm. so if you, again, if you look at her and her her ancestors, these these Middle Eastern goddesses, they can be naked, but they've got horns on their head and their feet have been turned into claws and they're kind of brandishing weapons. So you know, there's no messing with them. But it's almost that what happens with the Canadian Aphrodite, it's very beautiful, but it becomes much softer. So it's a it's a softer nakedness and um uh and and then from there on in she's often represented naked and you do get a sense that it is a sort of um you know there's no doubt that it's a diminishment of her of her potency not that not that nakedness in itself was because of course all statues of 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 men of heroes and gods at this time are often naked as well um but there is a sort of um what softness is the word there's there's a there's a sort of softness which is both attractive but also which has diminished her 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 potency that you see in those sculptures that happened from around the fifth century bce onwards so that's you know basically the last 2400 years right right i love i i love the idea that she was once shown you know more proudly naked and with all that strength and I don't want to say masculinity, but that's sort of what it's come to suggest of that type of uh, depiction of nakedness versus like sort of half hiding herself a little bit unsure. You know, it's a it's a much more sort of traditionally female in sort of that 
unfortunate way of being mm. <laughs> something having been traditionally female yeah well i mean it's sort of the early naked goddesses my god you would look at them and tremble mm. the, the later ones you'd look at them and think oh i'd quite like to sort of have a cup of tea with or, or, and toast with them or you know <laughs> or go to bed with them and uh, yeah. <laughs> and they would i'm sure they would service me just as i wanted but that would not have been the case with those earlier those earlier iterations of the goddess mm-hmm. oh i just love learning how how much has changed almost but also just what they were presented as before Um, one of the most common threads in my podcast is just talking about how the myths uh were uh i don't know the word i want but influenced sort of uh by the men involved versus versus the women and most stories of the the goddesses being angry and spiteful at each other and petty and vindictive is is not necessarily how a, a a female goddess would have been portrayed earlier than that or were it not just a full-on patriarchy by that point yeah well I mean certainly if you look at the early hymns of praise to Aphrodite's great-great-grandmother you know Inanna so these are written we know by this sort of princess priestess poetess called Enhejuana and Enhejuana was the you know the oldest named female author in history and, you know, just listen to the kind of, you know, the way that she describes this goddess of love. She talks about her lady of blazing dominion, riding on fire, red power, ba- uh, flood, storm, hurricane adorned, battle planner, foe smasher. You think, well, that is, you know, you could not have a kind of stronger representation of a female character. And that was the female character of the goddess of love and war uh, written by uh, by a. Uh, a female poet so so I think you're right I think you know that happens back in the back in the bronze age and um then you have kind of three and a half thousand years where women aren't, really aren't much allowed to have a say and you don't you don't hear uh, about Aphrodite being um uh described in those 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 wonderfully powerful terms mm-hmm. I I actually I've only read briefly about Edhead Joanna and I need to obviously I need to find her work yes <laughs> oh, she's, no she's incredible it's so exciting you know oh, I know yeah. just, just imagining those rituals where where she was being praised I mean you know it's funny some of the poems some of the poems to Inanna are so explicit I, I was remember I was researching and we were recording a film about Aphrodite as well and we didn't warn the sound man that I was about to, to kind of quote this poem because you know Inanna's talking about her kind of love affair with this this mortal uh, kind of shepherd boy who then becomes a king called Demutzi and you know there's a whole lot of chat about ploughing my wet field and ploughing <laughs> my high ground and ride, ride me you know as you could see this poor man's eyes popping out of his head we're sort of like oh my god I wasn't expecting that to to happen happen now but yeah they weren't they weren't um, backward about coming forward when it came to the to the delights of female sexuality yeah all right well that's going at the top of my list (laughs) well i won't keep you much longer i do have one one other little question of a a sort of passing reference that i found in your book about a link between eros and eris Mm. and i wondered if you could talk about that a little bit yeah so you often see eros eros the 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 
baby gods of um, desire who accompanies Aphrodite and Eris, the goddess of strife, appeared. And the, the similarity between those words was not lost on the Greeks at all. And there was this notion that where Eros, love, went, then Eris, strife, would follow. Um, and I think that's very true, isn't it? Because relationships are hard. You know, we, we often do wrong things we're often led by astray by desire and we cause conflict for ourselves and for others and again there's this notion of desiring what you don't have what you want what you shouldn't have um, and that brings eris that brings strife to society and of course eris is there very famously you know right in the heart of the kind of greatest love myth of all time the story of helen of troy uh, with this idea that there's this incredible society wedding between uh, the king peleus and thetis the, the sea nymph the mother of achilles and all the gods and goddesses are invited and all the aristocrats and everybody who should be there is there apart from eris the goddess of strife who's been left off the guest list and you know not the person to forget at your <laughs> at your wedding and she she bursts in through the doors and this is this is exactly you know the origin of the sleeping beauty story and she throws down a golden apple and on the golden apple are written are written the words for the fairest and it's a very clever little act of destabilization because you've got all the great goddesses there and all the kind of aristocrats and queens and princesses and Eris is often represented on Greek pots, like, again, the archetypal bad fairy of all fairy tales, with sort of black wings and black pointy boots and long black nails. Um, and Zeus, who's there, says, oh, gosh, I couldn't possibly choose who's the fairest. <laughs> you know, Zeus with no backbone at all, and sends off his messenger to find Paris, the prince Paris, uh, who's minding his own business, looking after goats on a mountain in Turkey. And the messenger says, you have to choose who is the fairest of the goddesses. And it's it, you know, going to be Athena, who will give you prowess and war. Is it Hera, who will give you dominion over the known world? Or is it Aphrodite, the goddess of love? And they all turn up and give him a bribe. And, and Aphrodite, recognising that Paris is the kind of teenage boy, we're told simply bats her eyelashes and loosens her girdle and says, I have nothing to give you but the most beautiful woman in the world, <laughs> Helen of Troy, you know, and the, and the story is set there for the whole Trojan War and the Helen, the Helen of Troy and Paris elopement. But that is all because of Eris. So it's Eris being introduced into this kind of theatre of love. Um, so, yes, that's I think it's a very subtle. Um, it's a very subtle way of the Greeks basically being sort of saying being careful of what you wish for you know and uh you know very appropriately so but but Aphrodite you know she isn't all about Eris and Eris doesn't have the upper hand and and I think why I've so loved kind of following her trail uh through time in the writing of this book is that she that there's something very hopeful about her you know she has these she has these very dangerous epithets sometimes Aphrodite Milanis, Aphrodite the Dark Knight, Aphrodite Epistrophea, Aphrodite the Deceiver, Aphrodite the Tomb Maker. But she is also, as we said right at the beginning, she's the goddess of mixes, of mixing things up. And I think, you know, what she's taught me is that through her worship, the Greeks were really trying to understand how it is that we can basically get along together, how it is that we can have relationships uh, between lovers within families uh, between households in in towns in in cities and across across borders and continents so she's really the kind of goddess of communal 
living and um, understanding between people. And, you know, every time there's a crisis in the world and, you know, the particular crisis that we're going through at the moment, you see that we only survive through collaboration and respect and understanding for those both immediately around us and beyond us. And, and that is what Aphrodite is the patroness of, really. She's the patroness of mixes, of mixing it, things up, of a human relations and and the goddess who reminds us to, to never forget and to continually respect the power of love. Well, what a wonderful way to close this up. Oh my gosh. I, you could just see me sitting with a huge smile on my face for this whole conversation. Oh, <laughs> fantastic. I'm so, so delighted. Oh, I've just, I absolutely love Aphrodite and learning this much more about her has been so interesting. I mean, I, I always want to learn more about any of the gods, but she is sort of it. Oh, great. That's great. And I'm, I'm really, really, really thrilled. It's, it's been so lovely to chat to you. Oh, nerds, thank you so much for listening to this episode again. Honestly, it's such a thrill. I mean, I'm just thrilled to think about it again and to just remember all the incredible stuff that I learned and that we talked about. And, you know, it was the first time I got to sit in front of my microphone just staring at my computer with this huge smile on my face that I got to learn all of this. It, it also, of course, was one of the first time I ever tried to record somebody else from afar. So technologically, it was um, stumbling blocks, to say the least, which is so funny to me now, you know, talking with these enormous authors. And I had no idea what on earth I was doing. Not that I've gotten all that much better, but like I've mastered little things. Oh my God. Technology. Am I right? It's a tough one, but I hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, I really appreciate you all listening to this again and uh, just, you know, your support all the time. And I love how much you all have come to love these conversation episodes. I get compliments about them all the time. We're all learning so much from them. And I just think it's, it's really great, you know, for me, for the show, but I also think it's really important that these really often, you know, people that are confined to academia or, you know, their, their ideas and this knowledge is so combi- confined to academia that it's really important when these incredible people get a chance to spread it to, you know, anyone listening to a free podcast. And that alone is so fucking cool. And I'm thrilled that I get to facilitate that for everyone involved. It's, a, it's amazing. Thank you all so much for listening. I am Liv and I love this shit, obviously. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. 
Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Country, country. 